Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the reality of the resurrection, which we celebrate every week, but in a particular way, a distinct way last week. And I'm grateful for the reality that we live in light of the resurrection. And, uh, and so already we have been spiritually raised and our life is hidden with Christ in God and uh, and uh, and that one day we will share in the promise of future resurrection and grateful that in the meantime you have given us your spirit and your spirit has also given us gifts so as we talk about those today I pray that you would use them to edify and encourage us which is the purpose of gifts that that uh, the the body the church might be built up that each part would work properly together so we would be built up in love. And so I pray that you would do these things in us by your grace, through your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Quibbing Class. This semester, as you know, we're talking about applied theology. One of the things that we've mentioned is the fact that all theology is practical. All theology is applicable. The challenge is just for you to find out how it applies to your life. If nothing else, it simply is an opportunity for you to Worship and to have your affections increase for God. But this semester, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to kind of make some of those connections for you and uh, to dive down into the practical connections and implications of our theology, especially as it relates to discipleship. So today, what we're going to talk about is, uh, or talk about, uh, are the spiritual gifts. All right. We've talked about the subject of gifts quite a bit over the past year as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. But we don't kind of have a one-stop resource on it, so rather than recommend that you check out five, six, seven sermons from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we're going to have kind of one resource uh, on that. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning by answering the following six questions. Number one, what are spiritual gifts? How many are there? Why does God give them? Are they still available? Are they all still available? How do you discover yours, and what are some helpful hints for for pursuing and practicing the gifts. Let's begin by asking the question, what are spiritual gifts? If you were here last week, Jared preached for Easter, and so in his sermon he talked about, he mentioned the significance not only of Jesus' resurrection, but also a subject which is uh, unfortunately, and to the shame of, of much of evangelical Christianity, maybe even to the shame of some of our own hearts, a doctrine that is uh, often neglected in churches by, by Christians that is uh, equally significant, which is uh, the doctrine of Christ's ascension. That not only does Jesus rise from the dead, but after being uh, among his disciples for 40 days or so, uh, then he ascends to the Father, to the right hand uh, of the Father, and that this doctrine is indispensable to our faith and to our uh, practice. And so in the, in the Gospel of John, Jared again talked about this last week. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking of his departure, and he connects that with the arrival of the Spirit. Look at some of these passages in your handout. All of these are from John 14 through 16, which is immediately after, obviously, John 13, which is when Jesus does, uh, washes his disciples' feet immediately before the high priestly prayer. So this is kind of the, the events of the, uh, the night that Jesus is betrayed. So it's kind of the, the, the final thing on his heart and on his mind. John 14, 16 through 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, paraclete, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it uh, neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 14.26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 15.26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 16.7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In 16.13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see this 
this uh, Trinitarian mission in the book of John. The Father sends the Son, and the Son's role is to glorify the Father. And then the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit's role is to glorify the Son. So there's this Trinitarian uh, mission that's, uh, that's happening there in the book. But notice in particular what he says in John 16, 7. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now think about that for a second. Think about the implications of that. According to Christ, it's better to be indwelt by the Spirit than it is to dwell directly with Jesus in his humanity. Now obviously, or it should be obvious, at least if you're thinking with a Christian worldview, obviously in eternity, both of those things will be true. But at least for the present time, there is an emphasis given on the Spirit's empowering presence. So why is it better? Why is it better that Jesus goes away and sends the Spirit? There's actually a few reasons. I'll give a couple of them. First, because if Jesus never departed, that would also probably imply that he never died and he never rose again. So it's better that he leaves for that very purpose. That's why the Spirit comes. He comes to glorify Christ's work. And Christ's work includes not only his death, but also his resurrection. Not only his resurrection, but also sitting down at the right hand of the Father, where he's making all of his enemies his footstool. That's one of the, one of the reasons. Another reason is because there is this distinction that is made between Jesus dwelling with us and the Spirit dwelling in us. It is better to have the Spirit dwelling in us than it is for us to dwell with Jesus. So in is better than with. As D.A. Carson writes, why does Christ have to leave for all of these things to happen? He writes, the thought is eschatological. The many biblical promises that the Spirit will characterize um, the, the age of the kingdom of God breed anticipation. But this saving reign of God cannot be fully inaugurated unless Jesus, until Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and been exalted to his Father's right hand, returned to the glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. So that's another reason. A third reason is that in going away, Christ gives parting gifts. Not only the gift of the Spirit himself, yes, that is a gift, that's the greatest gift, that is given to his people, the Spirit himself. But not only does he give the Spirit himself, he also gives the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, you see Scripture make this connection explicitly for us between the ascension of Christ and the giving of spiritual gifts. Look at Ephesians 4, 7 through 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So these gifts are called spiritual gifts because they originate from and they're empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit is the source and the fuel or the power behind them. So with that in mind, let's look at a couple of definitions of spiritual gifts. Again, we're answering the question, what are spiritual gifts? And Sam Storms answers the, the, that question in this way. Spiritual gifts are capacities or abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity in order to serve other believers to the glory of God. Tom Schreiner says the gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit that are designed for the edification of the church, which can be divided up as gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. What I like in particular about that second definition is that it makes the, uh, explicit the idea that gifts are a form of grace. Schreiner says they're gifts of grace. And that's helpful for us because the most common word for spiritual gift that we see in Scripture, not the only word, but the most common word for spiritual gift in Scripture is charisma or charismata, where we get the word charismatic, which is formed from the root word charis, which means grace. So spiritual gifts are a way in which not only are we shown grace, they're a grace to us, but they're also a way in which we are empowered to extend or to administer grace to others. That's what gifts are. Gifts are God's grace to us in which we're able to impart God's grace to others. That's what they are. So how many are there? The short answer is we don't know. Let's look at some of the lists 
that you see in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now, there are variety of, uh, varieties of gifts. There's more than one, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Notice this theme that, that Paul's doing here of unity, but also diversity. Unity, but also diversity. That's a theme of 1 Corinthians 12. We're one body, but in, uh, diverse members within that. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. wills. Look at Romans 12, 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Or 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Now, obviously, some of those overlap. You know, you have prophecy in multiple lists, you have teaching in multiple lists, and so forth. If we just counted them all, we would have a list of about 18. I, I mentioned, uh, I, I listed those there in your notes. The problem with saying there are 18 spiritual gifts is that these lists are not intended to be exhaustive, they're not in- intended to be comprehensive. They're instead representative. They're representative of the various ways in which the Spirit empowers His people. So, for instance, if you kind of step back and, and, and uh, step away from passages dealing explicitly with spiritual gifts, and you look and you see, what, where else is this word, charisma or charismata, where else is that used and described of something that the Spirit gives to his people? You'd see that celibacy and marriage are also called charisma in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then eternal life and justification are called charismata, in Romans, so in a sense, any of God's works given to glorify his son and edify the church could be considered a spiritual gift. And I actually think that the lack of an exhaustive sort of list where Paul says this and no more are all of the, uh, the spiritual gifts, I, I think that the lack of an exhaustive list is really important. That's really profound. I think that's intentional on Paul's part. In fact, that's kind of the point that is being made. It seems like Paul in particular would say that any opportunity, any ability to serve the body that's empowered by the Spirit, that's by grace, is in a sense a spiritual gift. Whether that's a public manifestation or not, whether it's miraculous or more mundane, whether it's a speaking gift or a serving gift or whatever it might be. So how many gifts are there? I have no clue. In fact, that's not even an important question for us to ask. Let me give you an analogy. Might be helpful, might not be helpful. But most of this past week, I was home, sick, on my couch, had some sort of sickness. So this is what I'm thinking about. So imagine that you're sick. And uh, so think about all the things that you might need to get better. You have the flu, you have a cold, you have a sinus infection, whatever it is. What are the things that you need to get better, right? You, you need some, maybe some medications, right? You might need a prescription. You might need an antibiotic or Sudafed or Motrin, whatever it might be. That's one thing you need. What else might you need? You might also need some vitamins, all right? Vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, whatever it might be. You also need to eat. You need to sleep. You need some rest. And then you need fluids, you keep going with these other things that you might need. So your mind might naturally think of, the first thing I need, I need medication. I need antibiotics. Or you might think, the first thing I need is 
supplements or whatever it might be. But in reality, you actually need all of these sort of things. And the, the list keeps going, and that's kind of like the spiritual gifts. When it comes to your physical body, there are a number of things that you need in order to be healthy. Likewise, for a spiritual body. The spiritual body of Christ, in order for it to be healthy, it needs a number of things. You could add to that list a number of things, and any of those things would be an example, in a sense, of a spiritual gift. Yes, teaching and preaching and prayer, but also singing and baptism and communion and church discipline and financial generosity and encouragement and hospitality and on and on we could go. So with that image in mind of this more holistic sort of pervasive image of the gifts, let's ask why does God give these gifts? Let's start with a few passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then verse 24, latter half, but God so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that lacked it. One of the things we see here is that God is the one who appoints the members, and he appoints the members with their various gifts. The same way that we, that we don't believe that the physical body evolves by this sort of random, naturalistic, Darwinian processes from this single-cell organism or an ape or something like that. So we also don't believe that the spiritual body, the, the body of the local church or the body of the universal church, we don't believe that that just kind of evolves randomly. Rather, God gifts the body. Notice in, uh, in the uh, uh, verse 11, he apportions to each one individually as he wills. He gifts the body, and why does he do it? Look at verse 7, for the common good. That's really important for us to recognize. We talked about it a lot in 1 Corinthians. One of the main errors of the Corinthian church as it related to gifts was that they were being divided and that's ironic because they're being divided over the very thing that was made to unify them. The purpose of the gifts was to unify the church, to bring them together, to strengthen the church. And it was being used to actually weaken the church and to divide the church. What was intended to strengthen the body was being used to weaken it. What was intended to unify the body was used to divide it because the, the Corinthians were fighting over the gifts. They were boasting in their gifts. Rather than lifting weights to get stronger, if you think of that sort of image, you and your buddy are, you know, you want to get swole or whatever. So you go to the gym, start working out. Rather than spotting each other, they're using the weights and they're hitting each other. They're throwing the weights at each other. That's what the Corinthians are doing. Earlier we read from Ephesians 4. Let's go back there. It's the passage that talks about Christ descending and giving gifts to men. And we'll see what I think is the best passage to see the purpose of the gifts. Back in Ephesians 4, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? That he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's an important line there for you to recognize, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's your job to do the work of ministry, all right? My job is to equip you for that work. You go into places I can't go into. Your homes, your workplaces, your ball teams, hobbies, whatever it might be to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what's the end? What's the telos? It's the Greek word that means purpose or goal. What's the end? What's the goal? What's the purpose of the gifts? You see a few different answers in this text. They're actually saying the same thing, just different ways to say it. The goal of the gifts, the purpose of the gifts is to equip the saints for the work of ministry or to build up the body of Christ or to contribute to the attainment of the unity of the faith or to mature the body or to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If I were to sum it up in one sentence, I would say that God gives spiritual gifts in order that he might be glorified as the body is edified. God gives spiritual gifts that he might be glorified as the body is edified. We think of the word edified there. Think of the word edifice. What does edifice mean? It's like a structure. It's a building, right? That's kind of the imagery that's used of the church. Not this building that we meet in, but we ourselves, metaphorically, are a building. We are being built up. And for one person, one individual member, to not be contributing to the building up of the body, that's like a part of your house just simply cutting off. Your foundation cracking. Your roof collapsing. Your walls collapsing. Whatever it might be, you have a plumbing leak or something like that. It doesn't just affect that individual aspect or area. It affects the entire structure. If your foundation collapses, eventually everything else begins to get affected. If you have a huge leak in your plumbing, eventually everything else is affected. A lot of you found that out in the ice apocalypse two years ago, all right? So God gives gifts in order that he might be glorified as the body is edified or <clears throat> built up. And since God is the one who gives the gifts, it stands the reason that he determines how those gifts should function. He gives boundaries. He gives parameters for the use of those gifts. God has every right, and not only the right, he has the responsibility and the authority to say, do this with this particular gift, but don't do that. And he does that. For us, he does that in Scripture. There are lots of Scripture that bound. Uh, I'm sorry. There are lots of boundaries that Scriptures give for the use of gifts. For instance, he says that you should only use the gifts in submission to Scripture. There's no disconnect there. It's one of the great ironies of a lot of the charismatic movement. They want to exalt the Spirit. They exalt the Spirit though by disregarding the Scripture. The irony there is the same spirit who gives the gifts is the same spirit who inspired the scripture. He's not inconsistent. Spirit doesn't change. Spirit is God. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God doesn't vacillate and change his mind. So that's one of the boundaries. Use the gifts only in ways that are in submission to scripture, no matter what the gift is. It could be hospitality or administration or a miraculous gift or whatever it might be. All gifts are to be under the authority of Scripture. Second thing, Scripture says, is to use the gifts in an orderly way. It's another irony of the charismatic movement. It's so disordered, it's so chaotic, it's so frenetic. God is a God of order. That's not dull, that's not dry for there to be orderliness in worship service. It's the way that God has Given the gifts, it's the way that he has said they should be used. And then lastly, use the gifts in ways that build up the body, not that just glorify yourself or please yourself or make you feel good or whatever it might be. So God gives these boundaries for the use of the gifts the same way that you give boundaries to your kids for the gifts that you give them. For example, if you give uh, your kid a stuffed animal, for example, think of some of the things that you might tell them they should do or they shouldn't do with that. A lot of these things you don't think of whenever you hand them the stuffed animal. Then they do something stupid and you think, now I've got to make a rule. All right? 
don't put that stuffed animal in the toilet. I didn't think, I didn't think I had to say that, but I do. Don't use that stuffed animal to, uh, animal to strangle your baby brother. Don't eat it. Don't leave it out in the rain, whatever it might be, right? You set these boundaries when you give these gifts. Why do you set these boundaries? Not because you're a killjoy, but because you have more wisdom, you have more knowledge, so you have the right to prescribe how those gifts are used. It's wise and loving and beneficial for you to give those boundaries, and the same is true for God. He gives the gifts, but he doesn't just kind of give us carte blanche. He doesn't just kind of release us and say, this is yours, do with it whatever you want. He gives us directions. He gives us boundaries and parameters. He tells us how to use these gifts in ways that, again, glorify him and edify his body. Because that's the purpose of the gifts. If a gift is used in a way that doesn't glorify God, then it's being misused. It's being abused. We should repent of that. You see that all over the place in 1 Corinthians, especially as it related to the, the gift of tongues. You see it today in a lot of the charismatic world as well. This abuse of gifts and so forth. So speaking of tongues, speaking of the question of the charismatic movement, the question of miraculous gifts, let's ask whether all the gifts are still available or if uh, God no longer gives at least some of the gifts. Again, we talked about this quite a bit last fall in 1 Corinthians, but I'm going to summarize the arguments there. When it comes to the question of whether or not the miraculous or sign gift, there's lots of ways that you can kind of uh, uh, distinguish the various gifts, all right? If you're trying to think through labels, the Bible doesn't give different labels for types of gifts. It just lists out the gifts. It doesn't put them into various categories, but it's helpful for us the way that we think to categorize and systematize things. And so there's various ways that you could do it. You saw that in Shriner's definition. He said some gifts are for speaking, some are for serving. So that's one way you could distinguish the gifts. So there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Another way that you could distinguish the gifts is to say that some are miraculous, whereas some are more mundane. Or some are more pu public, others are more private, whatever it might be. By private, I don't mean uh, like... They don't affect other people. I just mean they're not done as much on stage or whatever it might be. So there's lots of ways that you could distinguish the gifts, but we're going to talk about in particular the distinction that is often used today between the miraculous and the mundane, or the miraculous and the non-miraculous, or the sign gifts in particular. So there's two different categories, and when it comes to the question of whether or not these miraculous gifts, these sign gifts, in particular I mean tongues and prophecy and the interpretation of tongues and the uh, working of miracles, the working of, of healings and so forth, there are two camps within the boundaries of orthodox Christian belief. Those two camps are called cessationism and continuationism. On one side is cessationism, that's the view that the gifts have ceased, right? Cessationism, the word ceased is the root word there. When they ceased is a question that's debated among cessationists. You ask three different cessationists, they might give you three different answers as to when the gifts ceased. Some think the gifts ceased with the death of the last apostle. Some think that it, they ceased with the closing of the canon. Others think that they ceased when the gospel had spread uh, to a certain degree, whatever it might be. So cessationists differ among themselves exactly on when the gifts cease, but they all agree that the sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, uh, uh, healings, uh, and, uh, and so forth, the working of miracles, are no longer available today and shouldn't be sought. That's cessationism. On the other end of the spectrum is what's called continuationism, which obviously holds that the gifts have continued. Now, the continuationist camp is a very, very, very broad spectrum in and of itself. It's not just a point on a spectrum. It itself is a huge spectrum. You have some who say that the gifts are available, but they're not all that normative today. They might be considered cautious continuationists or seatbelt charismatics or something. You'd also have, among the continuationist camp, you would also have views like Pentecostalism, which says that uh, not only are the gifts available, but they're also normative, 
and that everyone should speak in tongues. In fact, if you don't speak in tongues, you're either not a believer or you're at least not a mature believer. So the continuationist camp is a very big and diverse camp, and that's really unfortunate because it lumps together guys who would otherwise have very little in common. All right? For instance, continuationism would include guys like D.A. Carson and John Piper, who are great, but they're also lumped together with these hyper-charismatic, prosperity gospel sort of guys who are not great. But regardless, those are the two main camps, cessationism and continuationism. Every Christian is one or the other, all right? There is no, it's kind of like Calvinism and Arminianism. You may say, I'm neither a Calvinist or an Arminian. You are one or the other, all right? They are mutually exclusive, all right? If you don't understand how that is, send me an email. I'd love to chat with you about it. Same way, you are either a continuationist or a cessationist. You might not know which you are, but you are one or the other because it's mutually exclusive, all right? You either think the gifts still continue or they don't, or you just say, I don't know, all right? But every Christian is one or the other because it comes down to this one question. Does God still give the miraculous or sign gifts such as prophecy, healing, and tongues? And the only way to answer that is yes or no. All right? The answer is either yes, in which case you're a continuationist, or no, in which case you're a cessationist, or I don't know, in which case you're one or the other, you just don't know what you are. All right? Now, neither view is heretical. This isn't like Arianism, which denies the deity of Christ, or Pelagianism, which denies the pervasiveness of sin. This is kind of like the debate between Presbyterians and Baptists over whether to baptize your kids. Or kind of like the debate between various eschatological positions, whether you are pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill or whatever it might be. In other words, regardless of your answer, you have a lot of good theologians that are on your side, that are in your camp. Really helpful cessationists include guys like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, modern-day guys like John MacArthur, Tom Schreiner. On the other hand, continuationists include guys like John Piper and D.A. Carson and Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem and the Apostle Paul and Jesus. (laughs) Tipping my hand there. Now, sometimes there's a caricature of cessationism that says that cessationists don't care about the spirit. They just want to ignore the spirit. Some people say even that cessationists worship the Bible, right? Instead of the spirit, it's father, son, and scripture. All right? And maybe that's true of some. Certainly not true of all. That is a false caricature. It's really unhelpful. Likewise, there's a caricature of continuationists, that they don't care about scripture, that they aren't interested in, in submitting their feelings and experiences to the authority of God's word. They just follow those experiences blindly. Again, that might be true of some. It's certainly not true of all. It's not a helpful caricature. Again, there are faithful men, faithful women in both camps who genuinely seek to follow the Spirit and to submit to Scripture. In fact, on our elder body, we have guys who would fall on the cessationist side of the spectrum and others who would fall on the continuationist. So if you're of the opinion that one position is stupid or that anyone who holds the other opinion is crazy, that's arrogant. That's really, really arrogant. And you should repent of that. You can and you should think that there are better arguments for one side versus the other. I would encourage you to hold to one position tightly. But don't do so with this sort of arrogance that thinks the other side is stupid. The other side is ignorant. You can't be a faithful Christian and hold that, or you can't have a biblical worldview and hold that, or whatever it might be. You can't just dismiss anyone who disagrees with you. So in preparing for a discussion, we knew that we were going to have to preach through this. So last year, the elders sat down. We talked through some of this. We came up with a list of things upon which we agree, and uh, and also things that we disagree on when it comes to the gifts. So this is the elder body as a whole, Let's start with things that we agree on. When it comes to the gifts, what do the elders of the Parkway Church agree on? Every single elder agrees with the following five things. Number one, God still empowers his people with gifts of the Spirit. Right? You can't be an elder here and think God no longer gives any gifts at all. There's no teaching, there's no administration, there's no hospital, whatever it might be. God still empowers his people with the gifts of the Spirit. 
Number two, God, uh, spiritual gifts should be exercised in an orderly and biblical manner. Three, God still works miracles among his people, including things like healing, and we should pray for such according to his will. All right, so we might differ on whether or not there is a gift of healing that's different than saying God doesn't heal. Or we might differ on whether or not we think there is a gift of working of miracles, which is a gift that's listed in Scripture. But that's different than saying God no longer does miracles. How do I know that God does miracles? Because he still regenerates people. That's a miracle. So if you're an elder here, you believe God still heals people. God still um, does miracles. We should pray for such. Number four, God still influences, guides, and directs his people through promptings, impressions, affections and other circumstances. We're not deists. We don't believe that God simply sets this thing into motion and then just kind of leaves us. God is still intimately involved in the lives of his people and he's directing us and prompting us. We talked about this when we talked about dreams as we've been walking through the book of Matthew and see this theme of dreams coming up over uh, and over again. Our dreams aren't infallible like they seem to be in the opening chapters of Matthew. But nevertheless, God gives dreams. He gives impressions. He gives uh, these sort of promptings. They're, but they are subjective. They are fallible. You have a dream that, uh, whatever it might be, that doesn't give you permission to say, God told me, thus saith the Lord, with the same sort of Old Testament prophetic authority. And then fifth, Scripture alone is our ultimate authority and any gift or potential gift of the Spirit should be judged according to the criteria of Scripture. So we agree on all of those things. Where we disagree, though, is simply on the issue of whether these miraculous gifts, prophecy, tongues, gifts of healing, working of miracles, whether those gifts are still available and should be pursued and practiced. Again, we have elders who are cessationists, elders who are continuationists, and that's not a problem. That's never been a point of dispute or whatever it might be. So I'd encourage you not to make that, uh, again, an area of division. That is the irony, is that when spiritual gifts or, or a discussion of the spiritual gifts is used to divide a church, when the entire purpose of it is to unite the church. So let me give you kind of an overview of the argument. Cessationism says that certain gifts were needed at the start of the Christian church but have since ceased. And they reached that position on the basis of at least four different arguments. Number one, they would say miracles aren't evenly distributed throughout the Bible, but are clustered around the ministries of a few individuals. So you see a lot of miracles in the time of Moses and Joshua. And then you don't see a lot until Elijah and Elisha are on the scene. And then you don't see a whole lot until Jesus and his apostles are on the scene. And so they say those individuals, again, this is, these are arguments for cessationism. They say these individuals also, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and his apostles, they also represent these major events in redemptive history. In particular, they, they, they signify these, these major changes, these epochs in uh, redemptive history. You have the Exodus with Moses and Joshua and the entrance into the promised land. With uh, Elijah and, uh, and Elisha, you're having uh, them prophesying around the time of the exile. And then obviously with Jesus and the apostles, you have the new covenant. Cessationists would say that the gifts have never really been normative. They've simply been more normative during these particular periods in, uh, in church history. And so we shouldn't expect them, though, to be normative today because we're not living in one of those major epic changes that's the first argument. A second argument, this is a really big one, is that uh, cessationists say that a prophetic word from God today would challenge the sufficiency of Scripture, given the assumption that prophecy has a single meaning throughout the Old and New Testaments. They would say, if you say that Old, that Old Testament prophecy is, is infallible and inspired and authoritative, you have to say the same thing about New Testament prophecy which means that if there's New Testament prophecy today, that is a new revelation that would somehow compromise the sufficiency of Scripture. By the way, I think if this argument is true, I would absolutely be a uh, cessationist uh, personally. I just don't think that that actually is the case. But that is one of the major arguments. Number three, at the time of the New Testament, when it's being written, 
The gifts were still needed for the founding of the church, but they're no longer necessary since the church has been founded and grown. So they are, uh, they're instrumental for a particular period of the early church. So think of building a house. There's a certain period of building the house where you need concrete and you need shingles and so forth. But then from that point on, you're beautifying the house, you're painting and whatever it might be. You no longer need those same materials. That might be an image that they would use. And then fourth, church history seems to suggest that the gifts haven't continued or that when they have, they are always abused. And that's a big point uh, that cessationists often make is the relative frequency of the abuse of the gifts provide evidence that they weren't truly divinely given. That was a general overview of the arguments of cessationism. I've tried to be somewhat even-handed, fair on that. Continuationism, on the other hand, says that all the gifts, spiritual gifts remain, should be practiced today. That includes the miraculous sign gifts. And they base that on the following points. Number one, all gifts are needed today for the strengthening of the body. There's nothing in Scripture that says that some gifts aren't needed or something like that. In fact, some of the gifts that Paul says are the higher gifts or the more helpful gifts include things like prophecy. Number two, the Bible commands that the church should pursue and practice the sign gifts. It says that we should earnestly desire and pursue and practice Things like prophecy, and it never revokes that command. Number three, in the New Testament, it doesn't ever explicitly say that the gifts have ceased. In fact, in the one passage that talks about when the gifts will cease, it seems to imply that they won't cease until Christ returns. Cessationists would have a different interpretation of that passage from 1 Corinthians 13. You can go back and listen to that if you want. Number four, the Bible itself this is an argument for continuation. The Bible itself doesn't bifurcate the gifts. Remember I said earlier, the Bible itself is not going to classify and categorize different types of gifts the way that we do. The Bible itself doesn't bifurcate the gifts into miraculous or mundane or sign gifts versus normal gifts. That's a helpful distinction for us because we're asking the question whether or not certain types of gifts are available today. So we have to distinguish what we mean but it's a distinction that's kind of outside the way the Bible talks. In fact, it's really interesting when you read over those lists of gifts that tongues and prophecy and so forth appear right alongside helping and administrating and teaching in various lists. And then number five, continuationists say there are ways of understanding prophecy. I think this is the biggest one, especially for Presbyterian, Reformed, uh, really uh, biblically-minded cessationists, their biggest argument is that prophecy is a compromise of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And a continuationist would say, there are ways of understanding prophecy that are consistent with Scripture that wouldn't compromise the authority and sufficiency of Scripture today. So that's an overview of the positions. Remember, again, this is a spectrum. There are degrees of, uh, of each Everywhere from, again, cautious continuationists to hyper-charismatic to Pentecostal, whatever it might be. If you want to know more about the question of sign gifts for today, you can go back and listen to some of those sermons from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Or check out some of these recommended resources. I gave one from each camp. Uh, each of these books, I think, are helpful. Whether you are continuationist or cessationist, I think you would benefit from both of them. One by Sam, Sam Storms, who's a uh, a former uh, theologian, now a uh, pastor in Oklahoma, and then other Tom Schreiner, who is a uh, professor at Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. How do you know which gifts you have? That's the next question. Let's look at a couple of questions or, or uh, passages. Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 uh, through 7, now there are varieties of uh, gifts but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What do those passages have in common? Well, they both state that each and every believer has gifts. Right? Not the same gift, but gifts nonetheless. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Maybe you don't know what your gifts are, and that's okay. In that case, what do you do? A lot of people say, well, just go take an online test, right? Our culture is obsessed with those kind of tests, right? We go and take Myers-Briggs tests, or we want to see which 
friend's character we would most relate to, whatever it might be, right? We love Enneagrams. We think that Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and spiritual gifts test, there's somehow determinative of our identity. Whatever the online, whatever the computer says, it must be true, right? But think about how often we use those. We use those actually just to justify our own thoughts and feelings, right? We, we take a Myers-Briggs and we find out that, you know, you're an INFJ or whatever it might be, that's what I am. You're an introvert, but does the fact that I'm an introvert mean that it's okay for me as a pastor or as a Christian, I can just isolate myself because I'm an introvert? Of course not. That's sinful. That would be a sinful self-justification on the basis of this, uh, you know, just sort of sociological identity. Or if you're an extrovert, you're an extrovert, you love to be around people, that empowers you. Can you use that as justification to say, I'm never going to spend time alone in my prayer closet. I'm not going to spend time alone reading and meditating on scripture because I'm an extrovert. I want to be around people. Of course not. You're just using this identity in order to actually disobey God's. Knowing how you're wired can be helpful, but it can also provide the subtle justification to ignore biblical commands in ways that you aren't kind of naturally wired For instance, when it comes to hospitality, some of you have that gift, some of you don't have that gift, but everyone in this room should strive to be hospitable. Or when it comes to evangelism, some of you have the gift of evangelism, some of you don't, but that doesn't mean I don't have the gift, therefore I'm not going to share the gospel. If you have the gift, it means you're probably going to do it more effectively, it's going to be more natural, it's going to be, you know, you're going to do it more often or whatever it might be, but everyone has that responsibility to some level. Or when it comes to teaching, you might not have the gift of teaching. That doesn't preclude you from the responsibility you have to teach your kids. So just because you don't have a particular gift doesn't mean that you don't uh, have responsibilities there. I say that because uh, often these spiritual gift tests that you might take in a book or online or whatever it might be doesn't really gauge our gifts so much as your interests. It just tells you things that you're passionate about. It doesn't actually tell you whether you're gifted in that. I've used this example before, but I love singing. I love karaoke. I'm a quarter Japanese. It's in my blood, all right? So I love that, but I'm not gifted in that area. The Jones have a karaoke machine, Dan and Joy. They can tell you I'm not gifted in that area. I've been over their house. They've suffered through it a number of times, all right? So it's an interest I have. It's a passion that I have, but it's not a gifting, that I have. And oftentimes, spiritual gifts tests just tell you interests and passions. Besides all of that, a reason that I would say you shouldn't just take a test is because gifts can't be discerned in isolation. You sitting by yourself on a computer can't tell you what your gifts are because, by their very nature, gifts are community gifts, gifts are given to build up a people. So rather than you looking inward, I would encourage you to look outward. That's how you discover your gifts. One of the best things that you can do is not even just ask others, what am I gifted in? Although I would encourage you to do that. One of the best ways that you can do is to not worry about the question, what are my gifts? But instead, to just look around and see what are the needs that need to be met. It's much less important that you know your gift, that you take advantage of opportunities to serve others wherever there is a need. I think identifying your gift comes in time as you realize that you're, there are certain areas that as you serve and serve and serve, it brings you greater joy. And as you're in community with others who can help you see yourself more clearly. In other words, I think most of evangelicalism, most of the modern church in America, maybe even some of the way that you think, has it wrong by telling you, look at yourself to identify your gifts. Look inward. Rather, I think the key is to start serving. You just look outward and start serving and then trust the Spirit and the body of Christ to help you see where you're needed and you're gifted. Rather than asking, how can I find out what gifts I have? I think a much better, much more biblical question is, how can I serve the body? That's the question I would encourage you to ask. Not what gifts do I have, but what needs are there? How can I serve uh, others? If you, just, if you just devote yourself to regularly doing what the Bible prescribes, praying, giving, helping, serving, encouraging, etc., 
I think you have a much better chance of figuring out where you're gifted than if you just read a bunch of books about gifts or take a test or something like that. So let's talk about some of the practical tips for pursuing and practicing the gifts. Probably going to go over a little bit today. We'll probably just stick around uh, if there are some good questions and uh, go a little bit late. If you are serving in preschool, though, make sure you step out here right at, uh, right at 10. Practical tips for pursuing and practicing the gifts. Now, um, due to some of the aforementioned excesses and abuses of the gifts, especially within charismatic circles and so forth, some people just want to kind of ignore them altogether. And that's really unfortunate. They just want to ignore all the gifts. All right, That's really unfortunate because the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 14, says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. All right? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The word translated earnestly desire in Greek is zelute, which sounds a lot like the English word zealot or zealous. It sounds like it because those words are actually derived from this Greek word. Be zealous for, eagerly long for, be passionate for, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So how do you practically manifest that longing? Number one, Prayer. Right, that should go without saying, but if you want to grow in any area of your life, you should pray. At the end of the day, gifts are just that. They're gifts. You don't have because you don't ask, the scripture says. So pray, ask, seek, knock. Pray not only for gifts, but just pray for opportunities to serve. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities in order to help others. That leads to the next point. Look for opportunities to serve. Remember, the goal of the gifts isn't that you might feel empowered or you might feel noticed or you might feel self-actualized. The goal isn't really that you would feel anything at all. The goal is that the body might be built up. That's the goal. I think your feelings will come in time as you're faithful. But if you reverse it, oftentimes you don't get either. You feel good about yourself, but the body isn't built up. That doesn't do any good. So go back, to our, uh, go back and listen to our teaching on, uh, on serving a few weeks back for some practical advice as it relates to looking for opportunities to serve. Or go back to listen to our lesson last week on self-denial. That has to be the root. When it comes to the gifts, you have to think about them from this sort of root issue of, I want to deny myself, my preferences, my identity, my longings, my desires, whatever it might be. As Christ says, not my will, but your will. The biggest thing to recognize is that a healthy view of the gifts requires that you not just serve where you're comfortable or even where you feel gifted, but rather where there is this need. Think of it like this. Raise your hand if you're a doctor, medical doctor, not just have a doctorate in something. Although if you do have that, I don't think we have a lot of those either. All right? Most of us aren't. So that means if there's some sort of medical crisis in this room, everyone just sits there, right? Yeah, not my problem. I didn't go to medical school. Of course not. Raise your hand if you're a fireman. Okay? So if your neighbor's house is on fire, that means, you, again, you just do nothing. Just crank on Netflix. Drown out the sirens. Of course not. Right? What do you do? Well, it depends, right? Maybe you run into the house. Maybe you run into the burning house. You're a hero, right? You, you get the kids out. Maybe you call 911. That's something. Maybe you decide you're going to host a displaced family for the night. There are lots of ways that you can serve. If nothing else, you can just spend some time praying for your neighbors who've lost everything. The fact that you're not a doctor doesn't mean that you don't help someone in need. The fact that you're not a fireman doesn't mean that you don't help when there's a, a need. Likewise, the spiritual gifts. One of the best ways for you to pursue maturity in this area is simply to be aware of the needs that are around you and to seek to meet those needs, whether you happen to think that you're gifted in that area or not. So let me ask you this. If you hear of a need in the church, someone needs help moving, the church needs preschool volunteers, there's a financial need, whatever it might be, if you hear, hear some sort of need in the church, is your natural impulse, be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to take a quiz. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. 
I'm asking you to be honest with yourself. Is your natural impulse to think, how can I meet that need? How can I rearrange my life? How can I rearrange my schedule in order to help meet that need? Or do you find yourself overlooking it? Do you find yourself trying to justify why you aren't in a position in order to help others? I think if you want to practice and pursue the spiritual gift in a way that is in accordance with Scripture, you'll look for opportunities to serve and not look for justification, reasons you shouldn't serve. Number three, this is kind of a contrast to what we just talked about. I think it's an important contrast because I think there also should be a sense in which you should consider what you love to do. There's this strange tension when it comes to the gift. Sometimes we need to lay down our preferences and just serve where there's a need. But at the same time, if that's all we ever do, I think we'll eventually just flame out, we'll burn out. So there should also be some consideration of our unique wiring. Some of you are wired to be hospitable. That's just natural. Others of you have to work at it. For some, evangelism is really easy. It's natural. For others, it's laborious. I think that you should think through, what are things that actually bring me joy and give me life? And uh, pour yourself into that. That doesn't mean you neglect other things that don't, but it means you try to prioritize those things that do. For me, when I, when I first got saved, I realized I, I love to study more than my peers. Right? I had this strange hunger and thirst for Scripture seemed a bit deeper than those around me. At the same time, I didn't think I would ever preach. I was far too uh, fearful of public speaking, but I at least wanted to write. That was kind of my goal. So that's what I did. I started writing, started volunteering to help some pastors at, uh, at another church uh, to write some of their, respond to some of their emails when people would ask them theological questions. And that's how I got my foot in the door with my first ministry job. So what are you passionate about? What are the things that seem natural to you? What do you love to do? Find those things and prioritize them. Walk in them. You don't need a microphone. You don't need a stage. You want to teach, start a Bible study. You want to be hospitable, invite people over. You don't need a ministry or a name tag or a title or whatever. Number four, ask others who know you quite well where they think you're gifted. This is another big one. This is where you can see if you just have a passion or if you have a gift. You might be really passionate about teaching, for instance. But are you a good teacher or you just like the idea of it? For instance, I know guys who say that they're teachers. They don't really love to study. They don't like to read. That's a pretty bad sign, all right? It's probably a pretty good sign that you don't have that gift. So sometimes asking others where you're gifted will help you see that a gift that you think you have, you don't actually have. But also, sometimes the opposite is true. Maybe by asking others, you'll find a gift that you didn't even know that you had. For instance, maybe you're just a natural encourager. And so you don't even think about it. You don't think about encouragement being a spiritual gift that you have, and yet everyone else in your life sees it, and they know it, and they recognize it. So when you ask others, sometimes it, it, it shows you an area you think you're gifted, you're not actually gifted, but also... The inverse is sometimes true. By drawing others into the question, we involve the body, which is a good thing, since the gifts exist for the body after all. And then a last thing that I would say, don't look down on or covet the gifts of others. That's, again, should go without saying. The nature of a gift should exclude boasting, and it should also exclude Coveting. God has given you gifts for the edification of the body that we need. Your gifts aren't better than mine. Your gifts aren't worse than mine. God has given us the gifts corporately that we need for the building up of this body. And so we should celebrate those. I should be grateful for your gifts. You should be grateful for my gifts. Those should be things that we celebrate, not the things that we lament or covet or envy or whatever it might be. So let me read Romans 12, which makes a this point, and then we'll pray and do some Q&A. Romans 12, three through eight. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, our gifts differ, and that's a good thing. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is like a body. It's a metaphor. In order to be healthy, a body must be composed of diverse parts. A church with two hearts and no head, or you know, four spleens and no liver, is not helpful. I don't know what a liver does or a spleen does. I'm just thinking, that's probably not good. So there's unity, but there's also diversity. And in that, God is glorified. And the body of his son is, is edified. So let's pray, and then we'll do some Q&A, assuming there are some questions. Father, I thank you for the gifts that you give to the body. I thank you for the, the body itself, which is a gift that you have given to each of us individually. So you give the members to the church for its benefit, and you give the church to the members for our benefit. And so I'm grateful for that reality. I pray that your spirit would empower us. I pray that your spirit would unite us. I pray that your spirit would build us up in faith and in love, that we might love and serve one another, that none of us would use our gifts in ways that belittle or divide or, um, uh, or sow seeds of discord, but instead that we would use our gifts in ways that build each other up. I pray that you would help us in this area. I know that the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's prowling, uh, lying, seeking to devour us. And so I pray for your help with confidence because the gates of hell won't prevail against your church. So we pray in your son's name, amen.